this week on The Lunch, it's the producers of Jodorowsky's Dune, Travis Stevens, and Stephen Scarlatta. That's this week on The Lunch podcast, brought to you by Snoot Films, makers of quality entertainments like the upcoming The Guest and Cheap Thrills. You're listening to The Lunch, a podcast about film and, yes, food, where every week I dine with a creator or a critic in the world of film, and then, after that meal, uh, record this podcast. This week, it's very much my pleasure to have as my guest the two producers of the new documentary, Jodorowsky's Doom, a discussion and a demonstration of perhaps the greatest film that never was, as it delineates the attempts of noted director Alejandro Jodorowsky to get Frank Herbert's Dune made into a science fiction epic in the early 1970s, pre-Star Wars, pre-everything, and what happened to that film and how it changed science fiction at the cinema. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very kindly for joining us. Thank you for having us. Um, having seen the film, uh, I mean, it's crazy delightful. Can you talk really briefly, and I guess I'm going to shoot this to Stephen first, how did you first meet director Frank Pavich, and where did the genesis of all this come about? Uh, Frank and I first met uh, in film school back in around 92. We were both from New York and we just kind of hit it off and became friends. Uh, we did a documentary called New York Hardcore together around 95 and it came out in 99 and then we always discussed doing another documentary and there was just this one that's just been building up inside of me since I was a kid since I first watched David Lynch's Dune and discovered Jordorowski. So, um, yeah, eventually it was Obsession Dune, and then little by little, after doing a lot of research, it started turning into our next documentary. And, Mr. Stevens, you were saying that for you, a crystallizing moment where it went from index cards and post-it notes to get on a plane was when Mr. Jodorowsky said, I'll do it. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, we should give all, all credit to Frank, who's also a producer on the film. He, Mr. Frank Pavich, yeah. producer and director, and very much the gentleman who started the, the whole process rolling and yeah. delivered the product to the screen, but please go on. I mean, you know, for, for us, it's not like we were very established filmmakers or had a big budget or had a studio behind us or had anything. And to just reach out via email and, and, and to say to somebody like Dorovsky, hey, I want to make a movie about, uh, about Dune, you know, all credit goes to Frank for being able to uh, put a compelling enough uh, pitch together that he got the, the, okay, I'd like to meet you. And, and when that happened, and when he said, yes, I'm in, let's do this, then everything opens up, because then you have a movie. And also, it's kind of like asking somebody to talk about a two-year-long bad date they had, in terms of, <laughs> it would be very easy for him to say, you know, it was a negative experience, I wasted two years of my life and a boatload of money, and I don't much feel like it. But that's not the case at all. He's tremendously enthused and gregarious. I take it that you were along for your European shooting. Yes, I was very lucky enough to go to the shooting in, in Europe. But, well, I was the big dune. That was kind of the one in, you know, 
did all the res- did a lot of the research, so I kind of knew a lot of the background on Dune. You blazed a trail while walking without a rhythm <laughs> to uncover the story. Thank you, Dune heads, both of you. That's a joke for you. Um, and again, uh, when you're in there in the room with him, were you prepared for how much energy and, and just the excitement that he has at 84, even in terms of talking about a film he never made? Uh, it was very surreal because, honestly, when I was there, I was still shocked that it was even there and it was still even happening. It was a very surreal moment being in the same room with him. And, yeah, it was, you know, I, I guess going into it, I always thought maybe he was going to have difficulty talking about this film because, you know, but, yeah, the, the energy he had about it was, you know, you know it was very... Yeah, that's the yeah. movie. You know, yeah. The movie, it, and, and, yeah, you go in thinking you're making this movie about something that fell apart, but maybe, maybe you know, left some positive stuff. And then you've got the, the guy who's saying, no, this is all positive. You know, and, and, and for me, as, you know, as a filmmaker, just that idea that the process is rewarding, not just the end result of it. It's not just always about, you know, the end film. The process and, and creative and being creative and, and all that stuff is, is equally important. And he got something from that, you know. He got for whatever, however long, you know, a few years to sit with some people he respected and, and be creative and, and create a whole world and, and you know bring together all these talents. And that, for him, is a positive experience. I, I I mean I do a lot of writing on deadline for film reviews and interviews and what have you. And every time I sit down to write something for myself or for a hypothetical purpose that is not immediately on deadline it's the whole question of do you know you don't know if something's going to become anything until you start coalescing it you can't just say oh I have this idea I've run through every possibility of it in my mind it will therefore not be any good hence I will stop a lot of times it just feels like you need to make stuff happen just to get it out of your head and also the fact that as he said he really wanted to make the film of the the book despite not having read it Is, is that like a level of gall a modern director wouldn't be able to get over, get away with. I'm sure there's current directors who have not read the source material for, for their books based on. Well played. So you saw Divergent too? No, I kid, I kid. But uh, uh, they would probably be less nakedly honest about it. Is that the thing? Like, I don't get this sense. Of, a lot of the time when you, when you interview people who are involved in show business, there's very much that sense of I am now protecting my legacy and my image and making sure the statue of me remains untarnished. I got no sense of that with him. True? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I I think he almost... I don't know. (laughs) It's it's very, very interesting. I think he almost took pride in not reading the book. You know, when he first attached himself to it. But I mean, for for, for him, maybe it's an image he's cultivated, but it seems sincere. And he honestly doesn't have that, it seems like he doesn't have that filter, you know, where he can just speak exactly what's on his mind and speak this truth. So he's either the most perfectly Machiavellian and manipulative person alive, or he is that open and kind and excited and enthusiastic. I, I, for one, would prefer to think it's the latter. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, uh, know, Frank and Steve 
especially Frank spending far more time with him would have a better sense of him. But, but just from the outside, you know, it's just it's just so refreshing to see somebody just be totally open and just say what's on their mind, whether good, bad, or, or whatever. You know, especially in, at that sort of level, like you said, where people are all about sort of protecting the politics, you know, worried about the politics and protecting it. Well, I mean, also, like, when you guys first started talking to him, he hadn't made a film in 23 years. So it was very much a suggestion that this was a business which he was out of, almost. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel good about having, being part of that kick to get him back up there? Oh, I, yeah, words can't even describe. It's very humbling. I mean, throughout the 90s, you know, the only way we could see any of his progress was on IMDb and just watching like Sons of El Topo fall apart and then watching King Shot fall apart in the 90s it was heartbreaking it was exciting at the time it was like wow he's going to make a new movie but then watching it keep checking IMDb and watching it fall apart it was very devastating he, he wanted to make another movie so bad we never thought that this would happen and it's just mind blowing and we, you know can't be more proud you know and excited <laughs> that he got to make and, and it's such a beautiful film he made too to boot uh, one of the greatest things in the documentary is when you go to the book i.e. it's this huge massive bound item of all the storyboards, many production drawings. And uh, I mean, you say in the film that there's ostensibly only two of them. There's a few more, you were saying. But when he pulls out that book, which contains every storyboard for every shot of a movie he was going to make, I mean, is it hard to not say to him, you just be quiet for four hours while I flip through this, Mr. Jodorowsky, and then I'll be right back to you. We were very lucky that, you know, we got to go through the book throughout the whole production because, you know, it was research and it was part of the film. So, I mean, I'm very lucky to have, you know, I've been being so obsessed with this film for so many years and want to know what it would have been like. I was very lucky to be that close to reading all those storyboards and studying it and also seeing what else, you know, it influenced. You know, it was, you know, I, I, I can only wish they do publish it so everyone else can see it. You know? I mean, and that's a big pleasure of a documentary is for folks who haven't seen it. There's, you know, uh, Mr. Jodorowsky hired a design team that included H.R. Giger, the noted, uh, I believe, Swiss artist and futurist or German. Mm -hmm. uh, European. Uh, but he also got Dan O'Bannon, a special effects technician from uh, Dark Star and what have you. And what happened was, even after Dune didn't happen, a lot of the visuals and concepts and design from it kept on popping up other places, like in the De Laurentiis-produced Flash Gordon, like in uh, Star Wars, like in Alien, where Giger and O'Bannon wrote it and knew Giger could design it. I mean, is it, was it fun tracking down the ripples made by a stone that never quite hit the water? Oh, yeah, it's... You get, like, a high when you see it, you know? It's like... For instance, there was some we couldn't use, like... At, this is not really a spoiler, but you know, in, for Jodorowsky's Dune that was never made, at the end, the, the desert planet was going to become lush with green right. and forest. And then if you look at Ratha Khan, the whole Genesis program, and it's also in Search for Spock, it's almost identical, you know, from seeing stuff like that, you know, to, you know, like you said, 
a lot of Flash Gordon to, you know, even like something like Galaxy Quest that came out in like 99, there's an asteroid base that ships take out of, and in Jorowski storyboards, the Bene Gesserits, they travel in an asteroid base where ships can take out of. So it's just, it's pretty amazing that, you know, I mean, even though I don't think the people who made Galaxy Quest saw the storyboards, but it's just amazing what he was creating back in the 70s that is still coming out today, especially Prometheus. And that's another thing that's really interesting about the film is like it's it's sort of like watching somebody who invented punk rock in 1969, and it just wasn't quite the right time for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you know, I hypothetically think I would like to see Joe do. Remember storyboards of things like Paul Atreides studying fencing with a robot, and I look at the design of that robot and I think, well, how are you going to do that in a pre-CGI era? Was it all going to be matte paintings, opticals, and models? Because a is so great, but B, I think that's a really interesting. Like, was the film too early for the technology that surrounded it? If that makes sense, is that a, is that a legitimate question to ask? Yeah, no, I mean it's overwhelmingly ambitious, and, and we were talking earlier. It's like good, bad, or okay. I would love to see it because there's 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 going to be things in there that you would not ever see anywhere else. And it would have been. And I think that's the number one complaint we have about our blockbuster age is that things feel like they have too much of a house style in that you put any one of the Marvel movies up and it looks kind of identical, identical, identical. And they're not looking... They don't want to hire auteurs for those. They want to hire, you know, they, they want to hire ghostwriters as opposed to auteurs who can, like, fit into the voice and the style of something that's already extant. All, all we crave as an audience is an experience that we, we want a new experience. But the financials right now have to, totally prevent anything new from being made. So it's just riffs on the exact same story, the exact same production design, the exact same type of movie over and over again where you watch a movie like Pacific Rim and you're just like, yeah, it's hitting all these beats, but there's nothing unexpected happening. You know, there's no... That sort of... Like when the first Matrix came out, you know, yeah, it took all of these different influences. And it was in a benighted age where we didn't have to know everything about everything a year before its release. Yeah. Right. There's no sense of discovery in a movie and, and in, in, in these big budget sci-fi movies. And, and you look at, you know... You you look at these production design, these sketches from from Jodorowsky's Dune, and there's wild, wonderful shit in there. Yeah. From the the costumes to the the design of the ships to just the whole thinking of what a spaceship is. Right. You know, it's just, it's completely original. Uh, Chris, I believe it's Voss, who uh, drew several of my favorite science fiction covers and album covers during the 70s. Is another person you talk to, and it looks like he's drinking from a gin and tonic. Uh, was, I mean, he's there to talk to, which is great. You have Diane O'Bannon, Dan O'Bannon's uh, wife. You said that at one point it got a little bit tricky because people like Mr. O'Bannon, like David Carradine, like Moebius, Jean Giraud, just were passing away on you. And that really felt like, okay, we have to do this now and we have to do it swiftly. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, that sounded a little, a little sort of crass. Like, oh, I'm not saying that you guys were sitting there, oh man, people are dying, we got to hurry it up. No, not at all. You saw those things as human tragedies. Please let's infer that I'm crass and wondering explicitly 
forget about Jean Giraud's, you know, family and friends. What did his passing mean to you in terms of an inconvenience? Or it was like just a reminder that? For, for a movie that that is trying to honor the work these people did, it feels very important to have their voice in the movie. So it definitely put a lot of pressure uh, on on us to 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 complete this story before uh, we lost any more voices. Yeah, it was... Yeah, because we don't have any actors in the film. It would have been nice to have David Carradine being the, the lone voice of the actor, especially having... God, Dan O'Bannon in the film would have been incredible. You know, we're such huge fans of him, and... Oh, it would the fit. tape stuff you found from him, I don't know what that's from, but it's, it's really nice stuff. It works. Yeah. I don't feel you guys swerving the movie too much to fit with the audio you could find. It's very much on point and right. Where did you dig that up? Uh, yeah, that was that was really interesting. It's That's one of those moments where you get a high, again, a natural high. It's just that David, we couldn't have Dan O'Bannon in our film. It was very sad because we're such huge fans of him. He's influenced us all, and... I tracked down one of the first things I ever found researching this film was a it was like a fanzine where they interviewed Dan O'Bannon and God, somehow I managed to track down the guy who did the article and he happened to still have the Dan O'Bannon's interview on cassette tape and he tr- so then you had to find a cassette player yeah, and, and then you had to find somebody who could repair it. It, it it took a really long time to find it and I'm really happy we did and luckily on that tape you know he talked about Dune <laughs> right and, and I mean so, it just, it's his voice yes, in it there it, and it's really really great actually. Yeah, so kudos to you for finding yeah, thank you. We really wanted him to be present in the film, and we were really trying to figure out a way how. And luckily, that really helped us out. And, and what what Frank and, and the animator said, uh, Garen did just sort of visually. Yeah, you know, it's so it's so perfect. It's a like lot great. A lot of the film of computer graphics representations of the storyboards mm-hmm. come to life or brought to life. And I have to hand it to you, that never feels cheesy or ridiculous or like the, the throat-clearing version of what could have been. It always feels illuminatory while still being enough of a rough sketch that you get that it's a process. Was there, was there a worry about going too far overboard on that stuff, like yeah, filling think, it in too much? I think... Uh, I know that Frank was concerned about... Yeah, we, yeah there, there, there was moments we had a couple... Yeah, we, we didn't want to go too far with it. But, yeah, luckily we had an incredible animator like Sid. Uh, we, we knew it can only... There's so much to, to talk about in the film, and we wanted to keep it at an hour and a half. We only knew there was so much to show. So we just tried to pick out our key moments. There was some, I, you know, we would have loved to still have in there, but we just didn't have the time. So. I mean, there's so many great sequences in that book. Uh, and, and the idea of sort of like, hey, let's try to bring this movie to life for the audience. And it's almost like you get to see the movie yeah. with, with the animation, um, and, you know, adding in sound design and stuff like that. Like, it could have been twice as long. The movie could have been twice as long with, with those sequences because there's fantastic action sequences in there. But then you have to you have to pick the ones that move your story forward and don't just slow things down as you get into Jodo's story of Doom. Yeah. But it's also a deft magic trick. I mean, we were talking over our meal at Daichan about how 
You know, Harry Shearer has seen the day the, cr the clown cried. Uh, Jerry Lewis is a, a, a lost, ostensible masterpiece about a children's entertainer who works at a concentration camp to calm the kids down. And Harry Shearer said, oh, and it's not very good. Is, is part of the magic trick of this film leaving Mr. Jodorowsky's Dune in this kind of quantum state where you can still imagine it as the greatest thing ever? So, and and you, there's never any danger of being let down by the reality of it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's your friend telling you about the most beautiful woman in the world. Right, right. And you're, and you're like, okay, I can see that. But, you know, you're not going to, you're not, you need a proof ocular. And don't get me wrong, I think that's brilliantly tuned in terms of a film about possibility that recognizes that possibility can never be filled in to the same degree that reality is. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it earlier. It's like, like at, at the start of the process, it was, oh, this is a movie about Jodorowsky's attempt to make Dune. At the end of the process, you realize the movie is about so much more than that. It's about the fire to create art and the value of, of the process over you know, just the end product. And it's about Jodorowsky and his, his sort of approach to life. There's so much more than just the facts of what happened when they tried to make Dune. You know? Yeah, and you were saying that you felt like you were learning from him in his passion. And, and you know, he says in the film things like, to make a masterpiece, you have to have a little madness. And movies aren't just an industry, they should be art. I mean, we could all go down the street right now to Warner Brothers and get laughed out of a boardroom for saying that. But it's very exciting to hear him say it as a filmmaker and a creator. And I think this is what audiences are responding to. It's like, you need that person who's, who's willing to stand up and, and just raise their fists in the air to convince you that it's worth waking up every day. To convince you that this struggle to, to make something uh, is meaningful. You know, we need we need somebody to, to rally us. This all ties into a lengthy theory I have about like how, uh, you know, again, you know, there are those films that are good because they're good, and there are those films that are good because they feel important, and then there are those films that get, have to give that up due to other forces. And one of my favorite blockbusters of all time is certainly the first Matrix film, not because I like Kung Fu and not because I like seeing things vaguely borrowed from d decades of Japanese animation. It's because a movie that says flat out late stage capitalism is so horrible it might as well have been designed by robots who want you dead. You know, and there's a whole, you know, Lawrence Fishburne says, you know, you can feel something wrong every time you go to work, every time you go to church, every time you pay your taxes. I'm not going to get a line that cool out of a Marvel movie. You know, I'm not going to get a discussion of, oh, maybe our entire way of doing things is horrible and anti-human. And regrettably, then historical events intervened, and we could have no more, you know, blockbusters that didn't support the idea of truth, justice, slash the American way, slash buying lot of things, lots of things. Do you feel like if Dune had happened when Jodorowsky wanted to do it, if it had been a success, it would have caused a sea change? Maybe it wouldn't have been Star Wars with toys and Happy Meals. It would have been a bit more cerebral slash epic slash adult in scope? Or am I, am I just hoping? Am I wishing? <laughs> um, I mean, that, that is one of the theories people 
people talk about, you know, like, the what if it was made, what, 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 what would have Hollywood would have been like, you know? And that's a good question, you know, seeing how much it influenced without it being made, how much would it have constantly influenced, you know? There, but there's, like, there's moments in this film, like, for instance, in when they take the water of life, afterwards there's, like, psychedelic trip out scenes and there <laughs> which is perfectly legitimate about for a film based on a book about a story of a drug that expands and alters human consciousness right it's not mm-hmm. like we're being wedged in for funsies yeah but what's your audience with you're not taking your children to see this film but that's the thing you know? if there was an audience for it yeah then the people at the studios would have a different set of uh, parameters when they're deciding what movies to bring. If this movie did have an audience and right. made it a success, I mean, we've been chasing Star Wars. You know, in every every studio has been chasing a franchise like that since Star Wars for decades. You know, and yeah. it's, it's dictating all these decisions. If, if a movie like Jodorowsky's Dune was a big hit and found an audience and proved that these sort of totally original movies that had a different sort of agenda than, than just world building and soy, toy selling work. Who knows? I, I think, is it also the problem that anytime you have a genre proposition of more cost and X, it gets so expensive that we're thinking of, oh, we have to make this for everyone, which is usually a code word for dumbing it down to hell and gone. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I once, I once had a very extraordinary candid discussion with somebody who worked at Pixar. And I, you know, it was the whole thing of, you know, the gentleman who runs it all, Lasseter, always says, animation is a medium, not a genre. We at Pixar can tell any kind of story. So I said to him, you know, on the open pitch days you have, are there people lining up going, I want to do a PG-13 Western, or I want to do an R-rated version of Kathleen Dunn's novel, Geek Love, but with Pixar technology. And that Pixar director said, Oh no, oh god no, you would not get that past Lasseter in a heartbeat. And I'm thinking, that kind of stinks, you know, that the whole idea of we have to minimize this risk and maximize its audience is kind of what's killing big theater. Going. But even worse, that they have to tell themselves that we're tell- we could tell any type of story. Right. To get themselves motivated to come in and tell a children's story. Yeah. And they do wonderfully. Mm-hmm. And they do it and they do it wonderfully, but every groove becomes a rut eventually. And and it's also I just don't like the idea of a movie industry becoming a series of self-defining prophecies. You know? Oh, international audiences don't like uh, African-American leads aside from Will Smith. Let's never do that again. And that's what drives me crazy. What, what did looking at, looking at what went wrong with the film that they tried to make during the Nixon era, what are still the problems that the studios have? What are the lessons that are still uh, transferable? Well, I make independent films, so for me, the biggest problem is sort of probably traffic to get to the studios. Right. I don't really have any have any uh, perspective on on them. I mean, it would be nice to see more original movies come out of there. Yeah, absolutely. Original ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it would be nice again to see. You know, well, I guess it's hard to say. I mean, in a way, filmmakers had their way in the 70s they were able to call the shots and then the studios took over and now it's like you have to be like Christopher Nolan you have to make your two huge films and you're able to make the one for yourself I mean maybe it's still there but it's just to make that one for yourself you need to have like a Dark Knight Rises but you don't even get one for yourself anymore I think it's all product 
you know, the, yeah. the, the movies that are being made. It's like, what, I mean, hmm. you know, I mean. It's interesting, like, it, the way he went about this film, like, before Jodorowsky, uh, the guy who produced Planet of the Apes was going to make Dune. And he was going to have David Lean come in and direct, and he was going to have the production designer of Dr. Chicago come in. And he was going to use all the people, he, you know, all the 60s Hollywood, you know, costume designers. I would kill to see Peter O'Toole's dude. Yeah, but you know? unfortunately, I read the treatment, and it's really dry, and it's really boring. And, and why it was going to be is because of the people he was he was using the same people over and over again when Jodorowsky was like no one knew who Chris Foss was no one knew who Giger was he was really picking artists to create a world a new world that no one's ever seen and some people have been doing it over and yeah. over again for years and just recycling mm-hmm. the same thing yeah and you're still getting the same thing it's just be interesting people can you know start reaching out you know I think, I think Drew McQueenie said in one of our interviews you know reach out to you know deviant art for some people to start designing your films just start getting some you know okay you know, yeah. So well, that's. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like the last place I want to look for inspiration is another you know, genre film. It's like mm-hmm. I want to look at paintings. I want to look at you know comic books. I want to yeah. bands and the iconography that they're using. That's where you draw from. You draw from mm-hmm. these other places, and then you process it into something new. And for the whole thing of what's worse, reading a film critic who knows nothing about movies or reading a film critic who knows nothing but movies? Because I think you want to be somewhere between the two, right? You want to be able to talk about the cinema, but also talk about the other parts of life and science and what have you. The cinema... Right, you know, or you know, maybe you don't have to know about Greece under dictatorship to appreciate Dogtooth, but it probably wouldn't hurt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, just putting everything together. You knew you wanted an hour and a half long edit. You knew you were going to have to use footage from other people. And again, not being a producer, I'm always curious. When you're using stuff from another film like this, at what point is it fair use and at what point is it getting the clearances? There are very good attorneys. Right, who determine all of that for you. I think that you have to go into it with that in the back of your head, but just trying to make your point. Right. And then let the attorneys come back and tell you if you've gone too far or not. I mean, we definitely early in the process because we knew that this was going to be the end said okay this is a potential issue and we don't want to expose ourselves to risk and and worse we don't want to have our whole conclusion of the film be hinged on something we have to pull out so you can I mean I think that the, the general thing is sort of like 10 to 15 seconds is sort of the maximum if you have somebody commenting on what you're seeing on screen then you have a little more leeway if it's just up on its own without commentary it needs to be a shorter clip and uh, if you're doing side by side comparisons or if you're totally doing an analysis of of something then you have even more leeway I think that's my memory of but, I mean, it's always interesting to me the whole thought of, oh, get clearances for this, even though somebody might be disparaging or speaking, not even unkindly, just less than diplomatically about a film's merits. Like, you don't have to send that over to 
whoever owns the original Dune and go, we're about to have Jodorowsky say that Lynch's version wasn't especially great. And we'd still like to use some clips. You cool with that? Yeah. I mean, you didn't have to do, do that hat in hand, did you? I'm aware of. No, I mean, like you said, you know, I think at that point we had our, we had people right. <laughs> us out with all that, you know, we picked our clips and uh, we were like just hoping. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen Los Angeles plays itself? They play to be Egyptian now and then and it's completely illegal because it's just an a urban history of LA as seen in the movies. Okay. And it talks about things like that house you see in Blade Runner and all the other movies it's in. The Bradbury building, the parts of town they tore down to put in the downtown freeway exchanges that are seen in movies like Sherman, uh, like uh, The Exiles or Killer of Sheep. But it's all unapproved clips from other movies, often mentioned derogatorily. And hence, you can find it on YouTube or occasionally of Egyptian, but you will never find it on disc. Yeah, because somebody doesn't want to be at risk. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Did at any point this make you go back and look at the David Lynch Dune, or were you able to just maintain it in your memory? <laughs> I, I, I watched it, of course, because I, I had a, it came out on Blu-ray, <laughs> and I had to watch it on Blu-ray. Um, I still love the film. Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite movies. If it wasn't for David Lynch's Dune, I would never have been so obsessed with this. You know, so. And you didn't, go, and you didn't go back to it. I'd rather... <laughs> no. no, we'll leave it at that. I mean, it is a whole, I mean, there's also that whole thing of, despite the fact that this was supposed to be the anti-Star Wars, it winds up being very, you know, a chosen one, a evil empire, uh, special abilities no one else has. I mean, at a certain point, for all this stuff, you just take down the window dressing and there's Joseph Campbell standing there waving, going... Here to a thousand faces. Is, is that part of the challenge of seeing this stuff be told and this part of this stuff being such a big part of our culture? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I was like, I was just drawn to it because it was supposed to be the next Star Wars, and it just it looked interesting, and there was something that captivated about me, and I didn't. At the time, I, you know, I always loved film. I grew up at that time when Star Wars... I grew up at that time to witness Star Wars in the theaters, and it blew my mind. And then this film was coming out, and it was so weird because I was just talking about this. Like, a, I think a, a year earlier, I saw my first bad movie, which was Your Hunter from the Future, and I was like, wow, this is what a bad movie is. And it didn't stop me from watching it a hundred times. <laughs> and then Dune came out, and it was like almost like the first movie that challenged me because I thought I was supposed to like it, and I had to make myself like it. By I used to play my Star with my Star Wars figures while I watched Dune all the time, taped it on Beta, and and uh, I don't know. Cause so you also invented fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, no, I <laughs> but I guess I was just you know the newspaper ads said it was the next Gone with the Wind and stuff like that. I was believing the marketing. I was a kid, so I just I was supposed to like it. I had the comic book of the whole film, right? You know, so. It's just hard to say. It was just something about that world, you know. And I didn't know it was a bad movie until I got into film school, until the teacher said it was bad. And I was like, <laughs> my last memory of it is watching the Alan Smithy cut of it with production drawings and lots yeah. more narration. While I was whacked out on Demerol before an operation, <laughs> and that actually made it a much better cut. Yes, well, maybe that's the secret. <laughs> yeah, I, theater owners could have, uh, you know, just given everybody a Demerol drip. Well, there was supposed to be a four-hour director's cut. It was supposed to be released on VHS, so that never happened. And he and 
that cut happened, but David Lynch was, you know, not allowed. You know, he wasn't part of the editing. Right, and hence took his name off. It. Yeah, well, which makes sense because the pacing is very strange in that version, and that whole opening is so bizarre. You know, so as much as I wanted to see all the extra footage from that film, you know, I, I, I sat through that version once, but it just, you know. <laughs> you got what you wanted. How exactly did it taste? Oh, not like, good. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Uh, we've been talking about Jodorowsky's Dune with two of its producers, Travis Stevens and Steven Scarlatta. Uh, we ate at Daichan in uh, Studio City, a charming uh, old school Japanese homey place. Uh, you had the curry udon soup. Yes, sir. And you very much enjoyed it. Yes, I did. You're going to be—it's—it's it's one of those things you have more than enough salt to get you through the day. <laughs> it was uh, delicious. And you enjoyed the protein bowl. I did. It actually looked like uh, uh, Giger's drawing of the Harkonian <laughs> castle. Yes, it's sort of. It had shell. a head, it had two long skulls, it was a long shell. I had the yakisoba, which is a udon with a fried noodle in addition to vegetable and chicken. All quite lovely and all quite reasonable. What is your favorite guy's favorite place to eat in L.A.? That's a good question. Oh, jeez. <laughs> There's a restaurant in Playa del Rey we started going to called the Trapel. And the only reason we started going there is because the girl on, on Top Chef's last season, one of the runner-ups... It's her restaurant, and we were fans of her in the show, so we started going. Well, well and, and the food's good? It's incredible. Trapel. The Trapel. The Trapel. Yeah. Uh, for the food, probably Animal on Fairfax. And uh, for the experience, Magic Castle. I got into the Magic Castle once, and it's amazing I'm not out front of there every day shouting, let me back in. It's mind-blowing, like right? Yeah, it's yeah. Really cool. It's a yeah. secret clubhouse where you have to know one of the members. This is, of course, the Magic Castle for you non-Los Angelinos. Look it up. It's amazing. I saw the best... You know how they have all the performance rooms in there, and they can hold 200, 40 people? They have a performance room for six people. And it's you and five of your friends sitting at a table with this guy does close-up magic, and you're looking right at it from, you know, closer than we are right now, and you still don't know how they do it. It's Jodorowsky's Dune can be found at Jodorowsky's Dune on Twitter. It's released by Sony Pictures Classics. You can find more information about when it's playing near you at the Sony Pictures Classics website. And, of course, you can find Mr. Stevens on Twitter at Travis Stevens. And you can find Mr. Scarlatta on Twitter at XNECX. That's X, the body part that keeps your head to your body. X. Gentlemen, thank you very kindly for joining me. Thank you. I'm your regular host, James Rocky. You've been listening to The Lunch, a podcast about film and food. Next week, we'll be talking with the director and star of Blue Ruin. Until then, out there in podcast land, go to the movies with your friends. Have a meal afterwards to talk about it. It's a good thing.